is exiting the stage. If you missed uh, the uh, sermon notes and application questions on the way in, we've got a couple of tables in the back. Uh, please raise your hand. We've got some guys that are coming right now, and they'd love to hand you a copy of that. Uh, just raise your hand up high, and they'll get you one of these uh, copies that just uh, help you follow along with the sermon and then give you something to uh, use in your quiet time or your small group this next week, um, those application questions on the back, and hopefully you find that, uh, you find that helpful every week. So just know we're going to have those available in the back, on those back tables, so just get into the habit of uh, when, you, when you arrive on Sundays just to go back there and grab a, grab a copy. We've got some Bibles back there as well if you forget your Bible. Um, which will forgive you, I think, if you forgot your Bible, right? But, and by the way, young people, thank you so much for sitting up front here. I love that. Just like old times. Do you guys see? This is our students in the front row. I think we need to acknowledge that, right? Where in, 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 in a day and age where students are looking for the back row or the back door, right? Uh, our young people are in the front row. We're blessed by that. Thank you so much. And... Uh, makes me feel a lot, uh, a lot closer to all of you having these front rows filled. So thanks for being a stopgap here up front. Well, last uh, Sunday obviously was a historic day in the, the life of our church as we trans- transitioned back to one service and into this uh, new space. And I was thoroughly blessed by all the many positive responses that we got from so many of you. And uh, truly grateful for everyone who worked so hard to make last Sunday such a, a huge blessing. But honestly, last week kind of threw me off a bit. Uh, at first, I had a hard time discerning why I felt so awkward and really surprisingly out of sorts. Maybe, first of all, I felt like I was in a meat meatpacking plant. Like I know many of you, it was so cold in here. And uh, just to go on record, because I'm always the one that gets blamed for why it's so cold, right? Uh, I was colder in church on Sunday morning than I was at the baptism on Sunday night. Just want you to know that, okay? But we're working on that, okay? In fact, I walked here this morning, and one of the blowers was blowing heat, and the other one was blowing cold air. And I said, okay, we're working on it. This is good. So we can accommodate the, the warm-blooded folks in the back section and the cold-blooded front in the front section. And uh, anyway, we hope we'll get that dialed in here uh, shortly, but as I was just debriefing in my own heart and, and with the staff and elders this week, it, it really became clear to me how comfortable I had become in our old space and our old routine, and I was reminded at how I don't do change very well. Uh, I don't know if I'm like any of you, right? Sometimes uh, you just kind of get all out of sorts. It's like, whoa, this is really different. I'm not used to this. I'm not sure I like it, right? And um, in our old space, in our old routine, I pretty much knew where everyone sat every Sunday, and now you're all over the place, and I have no clue where you are, and, and you all seem so much very, a lot farther away than you, than you used to, and it feels less intimate, right, uh, than, it, than it used to feel, and, and it dawned on me how having our congregation divided into two services in a, in a smaller place with just one way in and one way out is basically how it worked over there, right? There was no hiding from the pastor, right? I could, I could just stand by that door, by that cheap gate, and, and pretty much say hi to most of you, at least shake your hand and wave at you and feel like I was, in some ways, interacting with a large uh, part of our body on Sunday mornings. Um, and so I kind of felt like, whoa, how do I do this now? Um, and, and just kind of felt a little lost last week. And 
I guess more than anything, as I was just thinking about all this, processing all this, I was convicted about all the times that I've wished that our church would grow, and now that it has, I feel overwhelmed and inadequate to shepherd all of you effectively. I'm sure you're aware that it's easy for a pastor to become obsessed with growth. Just so you know, whenever pastors get together, the focus of the conversation always seems to be on the size of your church. Someone will invariably ask, so how big is your church? How many people come to your church? And I feel like I need to just start saying, well, it's none of your business. What's it to you? I'm not telling you just to get a reaction, right? But that's so common. Because like everything else in our society, right, numbers are the measure of success. If you're a businessman working in the business world, it's all about the numbers. If you're in academia and, and it's all about the grades and the points and, and how much you've accomplished, if you're in the sports world, same thing. It's all about, you know, putting up crazy numbers. And that's the, the, the measure of success, and so it is in the church world, that the number of people who attend your church becomes the measure of not only how successful the church is, but how successful you are as a pastor. I regularly get stuff in the mail, either advertising seminars or conferences or books or programs or organizations devoted to teaching principles and methods of church growth or promoting some surefire way of making our church grow, whether it's a new evangelistic outreach or a new curriculum or a new, a new piece of technology. Uh, and, and, and as I look at these things and typically just chunk them in the, in the trash, there's, there's this obvious overemphasis on marketing strategies and business principles and corporate management models and target audiences and demographic studies and people's felt needs. And you may remember back in the 80s and 90s, if you were a believer back then, uh, the church growth movement took the church by storm and in, in many ways redefined and reinvented the church. You can walk into a lot of churches today and not even know you're walking into a church. And it seemed back then that everyone wanted to be the next uh, Willow Creek or Saddleback. Every pastor wanted to be the next Bill Hybels or Rick Warren, and they were the two biggest, fastest growing churches in America at the time, and they were both started, interestingly enough, by surveying their community to find out why people weren't going to church and what it would take to get them to go to church. And so they designed their services not based on what the Bible says, but based on what the community said. And what they wanted. To, and so they designed their services to meet the needs and requests of what was affectionately called unchurched Harry and Mary. And the seeker service was born. These two churches became the model for other churches to follow. Church leaders came from all over the world, literally all over the world, to learn how they made their church grow so that they could go back and duplicate it in their churches. And I think one of the most subtle and damaging results of the church growth movement is, is this over-preoccupation with size and numbers. And it seems like it's almost a contest between churches that who can, who can build the biggest and the fastest. There's a, there's a magazine that I get annually, and, and they have this annual issue 
of the largest, fastest growing churches in America. And they devote one whole issue every year to the largest, fastest growing churches in America. And, and so, it just again, it just seems that, that many churches are, are consumed with growing larger more than they are consumed with glorifying God. And uh, I think even well-intentioned pastors who love God and who are faithful to the Word, they want to see people come to know Christ and impacted by His Word. And sometimes you get impatient and you you get frustrated by lack of visible results. And so you're tempted to succumb to the pressure to have a big church and you resort to worldly methods and strategies to build your church. I mean, the latest craze now is, is, is basically celebrity pastors who have multi-site campuses, right? And, and you got this one guy that's just an amazing leader, an amazing communicator, and so they just pipe them into these, these multi-site campuses. All you need is a, is a space with a big screen, right? And, and they just, uh, you know, play his sermon in all these multiple campuses. And it's become a very effective way for a lot of uh, churches to pad their numbers, if you will, and to expand beyond their four walls. I read an article this week that was very sad. It was very sobering. I'm sure uh, a number of you are uh, familiar with uh, Mark Driscoll and, and Mars Hill, uh, a church that has been used by God significantly up in the northwest Seattle area to reach many, many people for Christ and uh, in, a very, in very hard-to-reach places. Um, but basically the article was about the demise of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and how after the first of the year, uh, his church will be dissolved. Uh, and and just, just, it's unfathomable. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime where you have a, a church of thousands of people who, whose leader steps down and, and they decide that the best thing to do is just dissolve the church. And as I was reading this article, and it was really lessons learned from this really um, disbanding of this, of this uh, well-known church, uh, one of, one of uh, Mark Driscoll's closest associates quoted, was quoted as saying this, Mark made it no secret that he wanted to become the biggest church in America, and he pushed harder and harder to be bigger, better, faster, stronger. And I think at some point, you're, you're no longer competing with the church down the road. You're competing with the head of the church himself, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. First of all, it's not my church. It's not your church. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. And he said he'd build it. Didn't say I had to build it. Didn't say you had to build it. We didn't have to build it. He was going to build it. It's not our job to build the church, but to simply exalt Christ, proclaim Christ, model Christ, and let Him build His church. And in the end, the real measure of a church's success is not how many people are coming to church, but how much people are becoming like Christ. Let me say that again. The real measure of a church's success is not how many people are coming to church, but how much people are becoming like Christ. Listen, just because there's a whole bunch of people going to a church doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased with what is happening at that church. It may simply 
be an indication that that church is very entertaining. Or that the preacher is just telling people what they want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, that, that people will accumulate right for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and basically tell them what they want to hear. And, and there's a sublime demand issue going on in church today. At the same time, I think it's natural to assume that when a bunch of people start leaving a church, that's a sign that the church or the pastor is doing something wrong. But that may be an indication that there's something right. So all that to say, size is not the standard of success for any church. The truest, most exact standard of a church's success is the spiritual maturity of its members. Whether there's 50 of them, 500 of them, or 5,000 of them. When the people in a church are, are growing and maturing, then the church is growing even if the attendance isn't, regardless of how many are attending, the church is growing. That's biblical church growth. And that's what I want to look at this morning with you and, 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 and next week as well. I want to revisit a classic passage in the Bible on church growth. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. And uh, as Again, as I've been thinking uh, these last uh, couple of weeks, as we've been going through this historic change and really turning a page uh, into another chapter of, of the life of our church, I've, I've gotten a little historic here in my heart and my mind, and, it, and it's, I've been reminiscing about uh, the opening days at, uh, at Stewart Creek Elementary School and, and some of the initial uh, books that we went through, and, and the very first book that I preached through uh, in, in our church was the book of Ephesians. Why? Because it's all about the doctrine of the church. And I, and I couldn't think of a, a more foundational book to exposit, right, to go through verse by verse in the book of Ephesians. And there's so much here, and I've been tempted uh, over the last couple of years just to re-preach this book because uh, it is so uh, critical that we understand the truths contained uh, in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. But let's for this morning's sake, just zero in on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And by the way, last week's message was the master's plan for the church. Forget about our master plan, right? Isn't it great? Oh, we're, we're, we just completed our second phase of our master plan. Well, big whoop do you do What is the master's plan for the church, right? And, and one of the key verses, one of the foundational texts uh, of this church that really um, is at the center of of, of our philosophy or theology of ministry, why we do what we do, is this text, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Let me read it. Paul says, And he, Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children, 
tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, obviously, the main theme of this passage is the growth of the church. He uses the word grow, build, mature uh, multiple times here. And, and, And Paul explained here exactly how God grows and builds a church and it and causes it to become spiritually strong and healthy and mature. And, and really the bottom line here is in light of the flow of this, of this letter is that spiritual maturity is the natural byproduct of everything that he's already said up until this point in this chapter. And if you go back to verse 1, really verses 1 through 16 are, are, are all go together And if you were to outline this section of Scripture, you could say that verses 1 through 3 are an appeal for unity, and he he, uh, gives the spiritual qualities necessary for unity. Verses 4 through 6 are the basis of unity, and he talks about the spiritual realities that we uh, have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, so that's the basis of our unity. And then verses 7 through 11... Uh, are, are talking about the variety in unity. While we're unified, there's a variety. And he gives to us all sorts of spiritual gifts to use to minister to the body. And then in verses really 11 and 12 all the way through verse 16 is the product of unity, which is spiritual maturity. So spiritual quality, spiritual reality, spiritual gifts all result in spiritual maturity. God produces spiritual growth in a church when the people live the way God wants them to live. Did you notice when I read this text, there was no mention of marketing strategies or, or business models or special programs or, or curriculums? There's nothing about felt needs or core values or music styles or the number of seats or parking spaces that you need to accommodate growth. This is a a, a very simple strategy for church growth. This is God's strategy for growing a church. So what does it take to plant and grow a strong, healthy, spiritually mature church? Well, before I answer that question, let me just mention this. And and I think aside from God's sovereignty in the church, in, in the growth of a church, right, we know that ultimately it's God who grows the church. God is sovereign. Whether a church is a big church, a, a small church, a medium-sized church, God is sovereign in that. But one other thing that's completely overlooked in a lot of church growth material is the basic principle that all healthy things naturally grow by themselves. In other words, if a church is healthy, it will grow. And so... Our main focus should be on church health, not so much on church growth. I mean, if there, was a, if there was ever needed a movement in the church today, it wasn't a church growth movement, it was a church health movement. Maybe we need to start one of those. A church health movement. Because the growth will take care of itself if you're healthy. And so we shouldn't be sitting around here trying to figure out what we can do to make our church grow more, but what we can do to make our church more healthy. 
more healthy. And so what are the marks of, of a healthy, growing church? And, and I want to point out here, this morning and next week, nine marks of a healthy, growing church. Now, for those of you who think I just ripped off Mark Dever's chapter or, or book title, right, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, um, these are, some of these are the same, but they're not all the same, but they just happen to work out to be the same number here. Um, so, uh, it, by the way, that's a great book. Um, if, if you uh, have never read it, I would encourage you to, to read that, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. In fact, um, we've had some people find us and join us here at Lakeside because they were looking for a church in the area and they went on the Nine Marks website and they saw that we were listed as a Nine Marks church, which simply means we basically line up with the same doctrinal convictions and the same core convictions as the, the Nine Marks ministry started by Mark Dever back in, on the East Coast. But let's look at these Nine Marks this, this morning. And if you notice on the notes, I've only put two out of the nine down because that's probably all we'll get to look at anyway. So didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. So the first mark of a healthy, growing church are gifted leaders. Gifted leaders. Notice verse 11 and how Paul listed four special gifts or gifted men that that God gave the church for the benefit of every believer. And again, this is in the context of of God giving gifts um, in verse 8 that he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he says in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And so the first group he mentions here are apostles. These were the men who were originally commissioned by Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. These apostles included, um, of course, the 11 disciples Matthias, who was added uh, to replace Judas, and I think we could also include Paul, if you want to call the 13th disciple. Um, And there was basically two requirements for being an apostle. Number one, you needed to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. We we know that from Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 22, where when they were uh, praying about who to replace Judas with... uh, they said this in Acts 1.22, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, by the way, um, you say, well, what about Paul? Well, guess what? He saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. He came face to face with him on the road to Emmaus, right? I think that counts. But guess what? I've never seen, I was not there to witness the resurrection. I've never seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, so that counts me out. How about you? Any other apostles in here? were there to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? I didn't think so. Guess what? There's no one on this planet who qualifies as an apostle, right? Because they were not a witness of Christ's resurrection. Uh, The second requirement, um, not that we need to add another one because we've already ruled out everyone on the planet presently, right? But the second requirement uh, for being an apostle was that you had the ability, the power to perform miracles in order to prove that you were God's chosen messenger and that your message was true. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 12, talks about the signs of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, 
the writer mentions this about apostles. He says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, some would claim today, well, they, can, they have the power to perform miracles and, and, and do signs and wonders, and so therefore they are part of this apostolic line. But again, we need to understand that these, these signs and wonders, these sign gifts, if you will, uh, were temporary, and they were for the specific purpose of authenticating the messengers of the gospel before we had this thing right here, before we had the finished canon, the Word of God. And so with the passing of the apostles, also passed the sign gifts. And so you've got the apostles here that he mentioned. Uh, you've also got the prophets, the prophets. And, and these were uh, those who were specially anointed mouthpieces of God who received direct revelation from him and passed it on to the church. And so their task, the task of the prophet, was to reveal God's will to his people before they had the New Testament. They were the ones that got up and said, thus says the Lord. What they spoke, in other words, was by the Holy Spirit, and it was the Word of God. So in in the primary sense, there are no longer any prophets today, and so we need to be leery of anyone who gets up and claims to have received direct revelation from God, like a lot of pastors today will get up and say, well, God told me I was shaving and and God came and talked to me this morning and he told me to tell you this. Well, then you get your pen pen out or pencil and and turn to Revelation 22, right? Are there 22 chapters in Revelation or 21? What are they? 22, thank you. All right. And you, you, you record, right, whatever he says, right? Because if he's saying that God spoke to him, well, that's revelation. Well, again, don't do that because the Bible says in Revelation 22, if anyone adds to this book, right, all the curses of this book will be upon him. So the point is, okay, in a literal sense, a primary sense, there are no longer any prophets. But in a secondary sense, any man who clearly and accurately exposits the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God could be considered a prophet, very small p, okay, um, if you want to make that distinction, that, that he's a prophetic voice, that pastor, that, that minister, he, he's a prophetic voice. As long as you understand it in the sense of not uh, foretelling, right, that's what a lot of the prophets did, Back then, they would foretell the future uh, as long as you're talking about forthtelling, that he's simply proclaiming the truth of God's word. And so here we have the apostles and prophets that, that Paul is talking about here in, in Ephesians 4.11, and they served a very unique role, a special role in the founding of the early church. In fact, just look back uh, probably to the page, uh, next page there at, at Ephesians 2.20, Paul talks about the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so really, God God used the the, the apostles and prophets to serve as the foundation of the church. And so once the foundation of the church was laid and, and the canon was completed, they were no longer needed, and so their unique ministry ended. The good news, however, is we're not left without the benefits of these two significant gifts to the church because everything they said and did is recorded where? 
in the New Testament. And this is what we are to be devoted to, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the, what? Apostles' teaching. And so we have, really, the ministry of the apostles and prophets, while completed, right, it remains here in our New Testaments. And so the task of the evangelist and the pastor-teacher really builds on this foundation. They apply the teaching of the apostles and prophets. Those are the next two groups of men listed, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Paul listed these four groups, I think, in chronological order. The the apostles and prophets were responsible for the foundation of the church. Evangelists are responsible for the expansion of the church. And pastors and teachers are responsible for the edification of the church. And so, again, these next two gifted group, groups of men build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We have the evangelists. Now, every believer has the ability and the responsibility to share the gospel with others. There's a question uh, on the back of your notes there that, that, that gives you some text to read to make sure that none of you can, can uh, think you get off the hook like, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, and so I don't have to, tell, I don't have to share the gospel with anybody. No. The Bible is very clear that all of us have the ability and the responsibility to share the gospel with others. But certain believers have been specially gifted by God to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and lead them to faith in Christ. Some of you have the gift of evangelism. Some of you know people with the gift of evangelism. seems like everywhere they go, they're telling people about Christ and people are getting saved all the time. And, and many times they, they serve as an itinerant preacher who brings the gospel to maybe new regions where people have never heard it before. Maybe they're missionaries, they're church planners. Sometimes they may serve within a local church and, and just their life emphasizes the, the importance of evangelism and maybe they even teach or train or equip people to effectively share their faith with others. And so you have evangelists. And then, and then we come to this group called pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. And, and you, you, you may notice in the English translation here, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? You see, it just says in some as pastors and teachers. This is one grammatical unit in the original language, and that phrase, some as, is not repeated before teacher as it is in front of all the others. And so the Greek grammar here indicates that Paul didn't have two different people in mind when he talked about pastors and teachers. I think he had one person in mind who had a combination of two different gifts. He was a pastor-teacher. Let's look at that word pastor first. It's the word poimen, which is the word for shepherd. And so Christ, the great shepherd of the flock, the church, has called and gifted certain men to serve the church as his under-shepherds. And so the pastor's job is to oversee a portion of God's flock that he entrusts to his care. And so as stewards of Christ's sheep, pastors have the responsibility to lead and guide their membership with their wise counsel to feed and nourish them with sound teaching, warn them and protect them, 
against dangerous predators by exposing heresy and false teaching and calm them when they're afraid by providing comfort and encouragement and correct them when they stray away from God's word with loving admonition and mend their wounds by applying the healing medicine of God's word. Those are just a few tasks of, of an under-shepherd of Christ. Acts 20, 28 Paul said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He was speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Peter said this to his fellow elders in 1 Peter 5. He said, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, in both of those passages that I just read, Paul and Peter were specifically addressing elders. And I think this is important that we understand how pastors and elders sync together here. Um, There are basically three words that are used throughout the New Testament uh, in the context of church leaders, and they're used interchangeably. There's the word presbyteros, where, of course, we get the word Presbyterian from, right? And that, that simply can be translated as an elder. It just basically describes who he is. He's an elder. And, and there's, in some sense, an aged, agedness there, not necessarily gray hair, but there's a, there's a spiritual maturity about the person. They're not a novice. They're not a newbie. There's an elder uh, element to them. Again, not necessarily age, but, but maybe how about this spiritual age, that you've been a believer for a, a, enough years that you, are, you qualify as a spiritually mature leader. And then there's the uh, second word, the word episkopos, which of course we get episcopalian from, or the Episcopal Church, and that it, it can be translated bishop. And uh, if, you, if that's your background, your church heritage, uh, Episcopalianism or Episcopal Church, you know that a bishop, kind of that's what he does, right? He kind of oversees that particular church or that group of churches. And so we have this idea of oversight, what he does. And then you've got this word poimain, pastor, and, and it basically describes how he does it. So you've got this spiritually mature guy uh, who, who oversees um, a group of people uh, or a group of churches, and he does it with the heart of a shepherd. And so we can conclude here that these three terms all refer to the same office because they're used interchangeably, and it's the office of pastor-elder. And, and the Scripture doesn't make a real clear distinction between those two offices. A pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor. And so... The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that God designed the local church to be led and governed and ruled by a team of wise, godly, spiritually mature men called pastors and elders. And so God entrusts this group of men with his authority to oversee every aspect of of a local body of believers, their doctrine, their staff, their ministry, their money, all those things, they oversee that. And their primary task, however, is to teach God's Word. These men shepherd the flock of God primarily through the exposition of the Word of God. Notice Paul says that he gave some as pastors and teachers. 
So here is someone who has the ability to clearly explain and apply God's word to the hearts and minds of God's people. This is the main priority of a shepherd is to provide food for the sheep. I love um, the little book that Charles Jefferson wrote. It's called The Minister as Shepherd. Listen to what he said about the importance of feeding the flock. He said, quote, feeding of the sheep is an essential duty of the shepherd. Everything depends on the proper feeding of the sheep. When Ezekiel presents a picture of the bad shepherd, the first stroke of his brush is, quote, he does not feed his flock. This is considered to be among the most damning of accusations which can be brought against the pastor of a church. No part of the minister's work is more strictly, genuinely pastoral than the work of preaching. When the minister goes into the pulpit, he is the shepherd in the act of feeding. When he goes into the pulpit, he then takes up one of the shepherd's most exacting and serious tasks. No man can be a good pastor who cannot preach any more than a man can be a good shepherd and still fail to feed his flock. I love that. Now, not every gifted teacher is a pastor or elder, but every pastor or elder must be a gifted teacher. In fact, in the, in the two lists of qualifications for pastors and elders uh, in, in 1 Timothy and Titus, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, they both emphasize the ability to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says he must be able to teach. Titus 1, 9 says he, he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Uh, I, I like that balance. Titus 1.9 is, is more like the color commentary on what it means to be able to teach. Able to teach doesn't mean you're able to fill the pulpit. That you're, whenever the pastor's out of town, any one of the elders should be able to come and preach a sermon. I don't necessarily hold that view, nor do our elders hold that view, but our elders better be able to open up their Bible, be able to open up their Bible, whether it's sitting across the table at somebody at, it's with somebody at Denny's or in their living room, right, or uh, in the hallway here in church, and be able to, to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. They, they better know the Bible, and they better know how to communicate it and apply it explain it and apply it to people's lives and people's situations. I think it's sad that too many pastors and elders, they either don't know their Bible or they don't teach the Bible to their people. And one of the main reasons I think that 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 happens is, is they spend so much time planning and implementing programs and organizing church activities and administrating the affairs of the church that that they don't have any time left to devote to their primary duty of praying and preaching. And so they resort to what's called the Saturday night special, right? Like, you know, some of you guys have heard me say, you've asked me on Friday, so what are you preaching on Sunday? I I said, I have absolutely no idea. You just got to know that that's been a busy week, okay? If I haven't figured it out yet by Friday, I'm in trouble, all right? But uh, I can promise you that by the grace of God, I've never got up in this pulpit and winged it with some Saturday night special. If need be, I'll go back to the files and pull something out and make sure I rework that thing and I think it through and it's not going to be something that I just kind of shoot from the hip on, but something that's been studied either presently or in the past and, and, and I can unpack again. But, but the point is that, that uh, I think you know, you ask yourself, well, whose fault? Who, wh- whose fault is it if the pastor's r- resorting or relying on the Saturday night special? Is it the pastor's fault or the people's fault? Answer? Did I hear, did I hear both? 
Yes, thank you. That's the right answer, okay? Listen, God has not called and gifted the pastor to do everything in the church. I was walking down the hall this, this morning, peeking in on some of the Sunday school classes, and I saw some guy in there teaching. I thought, man, I'm glad that's not me. Because the kids were kind of wandering around. They were asking questions. They were like, oh, I'm thankful you guys just sit there and look at me. And even if you're falling asleep, at least you don't move. You know? and it, you know, you, that's like crowd control. That's like herding cats back there in these children's classes. And I'm like, man, I am not gifted for that. That is not me. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't hold those children's attention. But some of you guys are awesome at that. You got these kids eating out of the palm of your hand. So that's just an example. God hasn't gifted the pastor to do everything, to be the do-all, be-all, end-all of the church. God has called and gifted the pastor to train and equip the people to work and serve in the church. We're getting there in verse 12. And sometimes pastors end up doing everything because they're unwilling to train others to do it. They, they, don't, they, they have a hard time giving stuff away. They, 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 they want to do it all themselves. They don't know how to delegate, right? Other times, they end up doing everything because people in the congregation are unwilling to serve. They're, they're trying to find somebody to do it. Nobody's like, nope, I can't do it. I don't, I don't have time. I'm busy, right? I'm thankful that this is truly from books I've read or stories I've heard. This has not been my experience here at Lakeside, and that's just an evidence of God's grace in the life of our church. But I hear horror stories about pastors washing the windows and mowing the lawn and weeding the flower bed and shoveling the snow and, 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 and then at the same time running in to preach the sermon. Now, I'm not implying here that, that a pastor is above these things, but he should willingly delegate these tasks to others, and others should willingly do them. Why? To protect the pastor from getting burned out and to help him maintain his proper priorities, which are very clear in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles said, right, remember when the, the widows weren't getting fed, the church was growing like gangbusters in Acts chapter 6, by Acts chapter 6, and, 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 and some people weren't getting food. And so they came to the apostles and said, hey, we got a problem or you guys got to fix it. And they said, well, time out. Yeah, I, I thank you for letting us know about the problem, but, but we're not the solution, okay? Because he, they said, the apostle says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They understood their priorities and said, guess what? We're going to get a group of guys, a group of godly guys. I think they were the prototypes of the deacons, right? And say, we're going to put them on the task. And they, they knocked it out. They did an awesome job and. And they allowed, that allowed the apostles to stay faithful to their duty to pray and to preach. And so the apostles faithfully equipped the people, and the people, people faithfully stepped up and served. And listen, the point is this. A, a church is bound to have problems if the pastors and elders get sidetracked from their main ministries of praying and preaching. The church is going to have trouble. They'll also have problems if, if they appoint leaders, if a church appoints leaders that don't match up with God's standards. I, I feel like I've got to throw that one in a little bit here. We're talking about gifted leaders. You could, you could maybe add gifted and qualified leaders. That, that's an assumption here. That's implied, right? Because without a strong, qualified leadership team, a church cannot grow and develop the way God intends. And I think one of the main things that, that stifles a church's growth is having unqualified people serving in leadership positions. They may be successful businessmen, they, they, they may be a big contributor to the church, they may have a great personality, everybody loves them, but that doesn't necessarily qualify them to be a, a pastor, elder, or deacon, right? 
The key is that they're spiritually mature men who meet the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. If you're going to have a spiritually mature church, you've got to have spiritually mature leaders, right? And so first, the first mark of, of a healthy, growing church is gifted, and might I add, qualified leaders there. And then number two, number two is equipped members. So you've got gifted leaders, and then you've got equipped members. Notice verse 12. He gave us some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. What, for what purpose? Why did, he give, why did he give the church? Why did he gift the church with gifted men who could pastor and teach them? Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That word equip there is a, a, a very important word. It's, it's basically talking about providing a person with everything they need to be useful in serving the Lord, to give them all the necessary equipment required to complete a task. It's, it's, it's the idea is being totally outfitted for a trip. If you're going on a mountain expedition, right, you go down to Eddie Bauer, you get outfitted for the trip, right? You've got to have all your stuff. You're ready to go. Uh, the idea here is a ship being fully rigged out, ready to sail. It's got everything to go. Head on out to sea. You say, well, how do pastors and teachers equip the saints? Well, what are the pastors and teachers and elders' primary role again? What is their primary function to what? To pray and to preach, to be devoted to, the, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So how interesting is this? The two primary ways that pastors and elders equip believers to serve the Lord and to serve the church is, first of all, by preaching to them ministering the word to them. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, what? Equipped for every good work. So guess what? You're being equipped right now. Whenever the word of God is being taught, you're being equipped. I, I popped into some of the equipping classes this morning from 9 to 10. And guess what? It was such a joy to hear you being equipped through the teaching of God's Word. How else does a pastor, elder, uh, equip believers? Not only do they preach to them, they pray for them. They pray for them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Here's the writer of, of Hebrews praying. He says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will according, uh, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so we pray, we preach, and we pray that you would be equipped in every good thing to do God's will working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. The analogies I like to think of when it comes to the role of pastors and teachers uh, equipping the saints is that of a coach and players. I mean, that's, that's the job of a coach, right, is to equip the players, He's, to, get, to get all the players playing to their full potential and, and playing in the right positions. That's what a coach does. That's what a coach is passionate about. How about a pit crew? I love the analogy of a, of a pit crew and, and, and the driver, right? You, 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 if, I don't know if you're into NASCAR. Uh, my mom surprised me a few years ago and told me that she was in a NASCAR. I'm like, Mom, seriously? You're a redneck, and I didn't know it. Um, 
No, seriously, some of you guys are in NASCAR. It's huge here in the South, right? But what a great analogy of, of this passage here where you've got this pit crew, right, who is serving and equipping and outfitting and providing that driver everything he needs to win the race. And so that, that car pulls in, right, to the, to the pit stop, and, and what do they do? They refuel him, they, 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 they wash his windshield, they change the tires, and, and they, they send him back on the track, and hopefully he's going to win the race. So they're providing everything he needs to be successful on the track. That's the picture of you. You're, you're the driver in the car. You're out there every, you know, you, you drive out of here, and you're like zzz, zzz, going on the track of life, right? And all of a sudden, you pull in here on Sunday morning, and we're here to go, zzz, zzz, we're pulling off your tires, right? And, and we're, we're washing your windshield so you can get perspective back. And we're, we're giving you some gas in your tank and giving you some word to get out there again and to fuel you for the rest of the way. That's what we're doing here. This is the pit stop. Lakeside Bible Church is a pit stop for Christians like you who, who are needing, right, help. You can't just expect to be out there all the time going around that track. You got to pull in every once in a while to get refueled. It's interesting that... that Players don't exist to make the coach successful, nor do drivers exist to make the pit crew successful. It's the exact opposite. I mean, you don't think about, hey, the pit crew won, right? Well, they're in on it, right? We know that. They get excited about it, but the focus is on who? The driver. And the team jumping around on the court, you know, the coach is somewhere off in the crowd, and they're focused on the team cutting down the net and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's all about the team. In the same way, it's the same for the past from the church. Listen, you guys don't exist to make me successful. Rather, I exist to make you successful in your service to the Lord. You're not here to make me look good. I'm here to make you look good. And so I love these verses because they just totally shatter this, this popular model of the church where the pastor is somehow up on this pedestal above the people. Sometimes they even set up nice chairs up on the stage for the pastor to sit in and look out, like, kind of like a, the Pope, you know, looking out over the people, right? Um, but you know what? I, I try to visually communicate this principle here by where I sit which is not up on the stage, but it's down there in the front row next to my family. Why? Because I'm just one of you. And when I get up here on this stage, I'm I'm simply another member of this church using the spiritual gift that God has given me, and that is the gift of pastor-teacher. I'm just exercising my role. I'm exercising my gift. But that in no way puts me above you. That's why I like to worship alongside you. If you know anything about church history, you're probably familiar with the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. You're familiar with that expression, the priesthood of all believers. Where, where that came from was as the church grew uh, back in the 14s, 1500s, a division developed between the priest and the people. And it got to the point where, where the priest was the only one who read the Bible or took communion and did the work of the ministry. And the people would just come and sit and watch him do his thing. Which is, by the way, Still going on in some churches today. And even though Martin Luther confronted this during the Reformation, and he talked about the priesthood of all believers, that, hey guys, we should all be reading our Bibles, we should all be taking communion, we should all be doing the work of the ministry, which kind of freaked a lot of the priests out. A lot of churches, a lot of Christians have fallen back into this unbiblical way of thinking. 
And so they hire a church staff to do the work of the ministry, and then they come to church and watch them and critique them. And when they're asked to do something, they say, well, that's what we pay the pastors for. Reminds me of the family that was out at lunch after church, and the dad was um, criticizing the pastor and criticizing the music and criticizing the message and criticizing everything. And the little boy was taking this all in, and finally he said, well, dad, what'd you expect for five bucks? And that little boy observed what his dad had dropped in the offering plate when he came by, right? What do you expect for five bucks? The point is this. God never intended for any of us to just come to church and listen and leave. God wants all of us to be actively and aggressively involved in some kind of ministry to others. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. What are you doing around here? What work are you doing? How are you serving? That's the point. If you're not working, if you're not serving, right, you're missing the point of being a part of a church. I don't think it's a lack of being equipped, right? It's a lack of being involved. God wants all of us to be actively, aggressively involved in some kind of ministry. And the ministry of the church shouldn't revolve around just just a professional pastor financed by a bunch of lay spectators. That's what it is in some places. God's plan is for all of us to be involved in the work of the ministry, that this is a team effort. And if a pastor and a a few others are the only ones serving, then guess what? That body isn't growing. That's an unhealthy church. We don't want to be that church where 20% of the people do 80% of the work, right? We, We want everyone involved in doing whatever you can. It was such a joy for me last Sunday and even this morning to see, see so many people running around doing stuff and making sure everything was getting done and greeting people and making sure people got from the parking lot to the front door and got the kids where they needed to go and you guys were serving. It was just such a blessing and a joy to see kind of a busy little beehive of activity of people serving one another. God has given each one of us a spiritual gift or gifts to serve a unique role in the body of Christ. And it's our job as a leadership team to help you discover that gift, develop that gift, and use that gift to build up the body. Notice it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That word in the Greek, oikos, means house. The idea here is a picture of a house being built. Remember last week we talked about a biblical philosophy of ministry, a theology of ministry is like building a house. And so we know what that looks like. Um, we live in a fast-growing community here. We're seeing houses going up all over the place, right? Some of you have built your own homes. You know what this is like. So we're all about building up the body of Christ, not tearing down the church. Can I tell you what tears down a church? It's when people stand around criticizing and critiquing everything and complaining about everything. That, that tears down a church. Instead, the best way to solve that problem is to get everyone involved so they're so busy they don't have time to stand around and gripe about stuff. And a wise pastor won't allow his people to become perpetually dependent on him, but faithfully works toward the day when the saints will be able to carry on without him. The true test of a pastor's success, I believe, is not what happens while he's there at the church, but what happens if and when he leaves the church. That's the true test of a minister's success. 
And if the church falls apart, he didn't do a good job equipping the people, right? All that to say, the goal of every pastor should be to work himself out of a job. Now, you're looking at me like, are you trying to tell us something? No, okay? I'm just saying, okay, that's the goal of every pastor is to work themselves out of a job, to, to train someone else to take their place. That's discipleship 101. And so you need gifted leaders. You need equipped members. These are the the first two marks of a healthy, growing church. And the remaining seven marks we'll look at next week, and and, and we'll see that they're just really the result of gifted men equipping the saints through prayer and the ministry of the Word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and particularly this passage to to go back over as a church lord it seems like just yesterday when we were going through that passage for the first time um, when we planted this church 15 years ago and lord how important it is for us to understand these concepts these principles and so i pray that you would accomplish your work by your spirit through your word this morning in all of our hearts I pray that you would continue to raise up gifted leaders, qualified leaders uh, to lead this church, to serve as your under-shepherds, and Lord, you would also continue to better equip uh, people here to serve you and to use their spiritual gifts to, to minister to one another, and that we could truly say that we have gifted leaders and equipped members, and Lord, we'll give you all the glory for that in Jesus' name, amen.